0: Well good morning everyone. It's lovely to be back. Are you feeling the chill of autumn? I think uh, summer has well and truly passed. My husband and I were on holiday in Cornwall and we were in 27 degrees just over a week ago. (laughs) So it feels a bit hard being back today but I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. Today our theme is not an easy one. At the end of a week when we've been listening to, on our television screens or wherever you hear the news, we've been hearing about global leaders having difficulty making difficult decisions. Today our theme is making hard personal decisions and the cost of being a disciple of Christ. We're going to pray together now our prayer of confession and thanksgiving. And as usual, I'm going to end inviting you to join me in saying the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray together. As we sit gathered here before you, Lord Jesus, our desire is for you to be first in our lives, in our minds, and in our very hearts. We consciously now set all other concerns aside for a few minutes and fix our eyes on you, our Lord and our God. Lord Jesus, you call us to follow you. And we confess this morning that we find your call demanding sometimes. In the face of our love, of our family, The needs of our colleagues, the needs of our friends, we find it hard sometimes to place you first in all things. Forgive us, Lord Jesus. We cling to our possessions for comfort and ease. We can't imagine how we might manage with less than we have. Forgive us, Lord Jesus. To count the cost of following you is an intimidating prospect, and we'd rather not do it. Forgive us, Lord Jesus. We like the lives we've built and we don't want to change them. Forgive us, Lord Jesus. Give us courage to take up the cross and be your disciples, knowing that this is the path to peace. Thank you, Lord, that you are honest with us and that you graciously help us by your Holy Spirit to be honest with ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that we can come afresh each day to you and ask for the strength to go forward in faith and in hope as you lead us and show us your way. For you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And now, as a token of our renewed commitment to you as a body of believers together, we say the prayer that you taught your first disciples our Father, who art Our in heaven, heaven. hallowed
1: first reading is Psalm 1, taken from the NRSV version. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seats of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither, In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. <coughs>
2: Second reading is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33, The Cost of Discipleship. Now large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intended to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost, to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Amen.
0: Thank you, Bethany and Edith, for reading to us. Do you ever hear a text and say, I'm sorry for the preacher having to preach from that? (laughs) Kind of how I feel today. But it's actually a wonderful text. And thank you, Bethany and Edith, for reading from the NRSV. Um, I will be using that for biblical quotes this morning. As I prepared this sermon, I thought, I can't address this subject and show images on a screen behind me. How could I possibly find any images that would be appropriate to the subject of counting the cost of discipleship? It made me think of Romans 10:17, which says, Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. So, I left my projector and my laptop at home this morning. And I hope, God willing, I can verbally present to you something for your consideration from these somewhat difficult texts that are presented to us by the Roots material for this morning. The Luke test text is open to differing interpretations. And I don't know why it is, but I happen to have a lot of commentaries on Luke. And I was having a look through them, and one of the writers was honest enough to say that commentators don't really want to comment on Luke 14. And I couldn't believe it, but another one just completely missed it out. He jumped from chapter 13 right to chapter 15, as if Luke 14 just didn't exist. I had considerable sympathy with the first writer, but couldn't take the second option of missing it out altogether. So this morning, as I come and bring this word to you, I want to acknowledge that I have gained a lot of help from this particular book. John Howard Yoder is a Mennonite uh, theologian. I think he's passed away now. But this is a very recently published book that's a compilation of some of his writings, I think, that hadn't been published elsewhere. Radical Christian Discipleship by John Howard Yoder. And I have referred to this a lot in preparing for this morning, even although only one chapter actually deals specifically with the price of discipleship. I'll leave it here in case anyone wants to have a look at that after the service. The challenge that's given the preacher today in the roots material that we are following is to take an ancient message from the Old Testament and see how it resurfaces in the New Testament and then to apply it to the 21st century, to us as believers here now today. And that's the outline of the plan of my sermon this morning. The ancient message for this morning that we're considering is beautifully, if somewhat starkly, presented to us in the familiar words of Psalm 1. Now, I've never studied Hebrew, but I can appreciate that we can't get really the sense of the beauty and the form of the Hebrew poetry in this or any other psalm in our English translations. But we can get a sense of the directness and completeness of what the psalmist is trying to say to us. This psalm opens the Psalter, there's five books in the Psalter that complete the whole book of 150 psalms as we know it, and most of these psalms present us with two fundamental choices of the way to go in life and the important decisions that we have to make, how to go in the important decisions that we have to make as we journey through life. So here's Psalm 1 starting the whole Psalter that actually presents all the way through these two options. And what a relevant consideration this week when we've been watching our global leaders wrestling with decisions over what to do over the Syrian question and the horrific evidence seemingly mounting that Assad has used chemical weapons against his own people. Life and death questions, difficult decisions, which way to turn, what will be the outcome? I'm not providing answers this morning. I'm not making a political statement. But I'm asking is there really any such thing as a just war? Is there a good reason to take up arms? I'm just putting words around what I'm sure have been questions that we have all asked as we have considered these difficult questions that face the leaders of many, many countries in the world, even today. Back at Psalm 1. This psalmist says in every life situation we can either choose to go God's way or we can go the way that he describes as wicked. These options are presented by him and I am assuming that it was a hymn. It probably was. They're presented by him as starkly black and white, life and death. The first way he implies leads to a prosperous life of stable rootedness. And the second way, he says, reduces those who follow it to nothing more than chaff that gets blown away in the wind. As we examine this text with our 21st century eyes, we're thinking, and we perhaps know, things are rarely so straightforward. And what's going on with the Assad regime and the rebels in Syria, it isn't straightforward to work out what's going to happen there or what could happen there. Things are just not viewable so clearly. And so we think this psalmist is being idealistic. Or is he? That's a question that's posed to us this morning as we read this psalm. He says, Those who continually meditate on the law of the Lord and there I understand from reading various commentaries the law doesn't mean the Deuteronomic Code so it's not a legalistic following of the law. It just means the whole revelation of God as we know it. Those who follow that are like fruitful trees who are planted by streams of water. What they do in life prospers. That's very similar to a Jeremiah text that explains it a bit further it takes the stream and the tree analogy a wee bit further by saying that inner prosperity happens even when outwardly things are difficult. This is what Jeremiah says, 17, 7 to 8. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when the heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green, In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Back again to Psalm 1. Then comes the stark comparison with those who choose the other path, not the godly path. The path that he says is the way of the wicked. They have no foundation and no connection with the source of life. That's what the psalmist is implying. He also mentions the word judgment, by the way, but I found by looking at the commentaries that... That is not clear, so I don't want to comment on what judgment means in that context. Finally, he brings the psalm round for us to something that is comfortable. He says, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. We find that comfortable as Christians because we read with our Christian view back into the Old Testament and know that Christ is our righteousness. He has become our righteousness we may be a little less comfortable with the blunt ending that says those that go the other way perish, are no more. Black and white. Life and death, two options facing all of us. The psalmist tells us the outcome of choosing the right way, but it's not until this ancient message then resurfaces in the New Testament that we learn that not only is the right way not easy, but there may be a considerable cost involved in going that way I'm now going over to the Luke text we're at Luke 14 verses 25 to 33 the roots materials which I was using as a backdrop to what my preaching in the services this morning described what Jesus said in this text as shocking he shocked his listeners and indeed his words shock us afresh this morning. It's like a reality check on the nature of the life to which we are called as Jesus' disciples. In short, Jesus is saying here, I will not pull the wool over your eyes. Don't follow me if you haven't first counted the cost. This is not a soft option. It might just cost you everything you've got. In my own paraphrase, I think the text is saying, Jesus speaking to the crowds following him if you want to be my disciple you need to put me first even before your family, even before your very own life you'll need to be prepared to walk the way of the cross and you'll need to be prepared to give up everything for me to attempt to understand the meaning of what Jesus is saying here we need to actually put his words into the right context For us here in the 21st century, with our seeker-friendly missional outlook, we're very sensitive to not put people off from the message of the good news. So we're recoiling this morning at these words as they're presented to us in our scripture today. Jesus isn't making this message attractive to believers, and we don't understand with our 21st century mentality why that is. But Jesus was speaking into a different context. Chapter 9 of Luke's gospel changes the momentum. This is a story of Jesus that Luke is recording. At this point, chapter 9, he's set his face towards Jerusalem. And the whole story Luke is telling tilts towards the ultimate climax. Calvary. Then the resurrection. Then the ascension. And then, of course, Luke flows into his second story, which is the book of Acts, which starts with the ascension and flows into Pentecost. And then the gospel goes out. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Chapter 10, we're told in Luke that he sends out the 70 or the 72, depending which translation you're reading, and he told them they had to put a decisive challenge to the people. They must either be received or not received, and they come back reporting success. They'd had a hearing. By chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 12, Luke recalls for us so many thousands of people had assembled around Jesus that they were treading on top of each other. By chapter 13, it's already becoming visible that this movement is going to have political implications. There's a growing momentum, a growing membership, a growing audience. And then using Yoder's word, the warning flag goes up. There are multitudes present in chapter 14. And Jesus says to them, don't decide to follow me lightly. He's being a realist here. He doesn't coax them in with a soft story and then tell them the reality 10 minutes later. He doesn't want them to follow him because he's popular. He doesn't want them to follow him if they don't understand the whole message, if they're just understanding part of it. I want you to know the bad news before you decide to follow me, Jesus says to them. Then he illustrates his warning, not with two parables. They look like two parables, but they are not two parables. They're actually very politically understood, politi- very publicly understood political jokes. It's a bit like showing you a punch cartoon. His illustrations are this someone shamed and embarrassed because he couldn't complete a building project, or a king who went out to battle without first assessing the cost. These were things that Jesus' listeners in this story could readily identify with because Herod had done both. He had done both and was so ashamed and embarrassed by what he'd done that people were, men were laughing at him behind their beards. I guess the equivalent for us, I was trying to think, what would be the equivalent for us of such public projects that are just unfinished or they actually look foolish. and I, The only things I could think of, do you remember the flyover that has now been completed for the M74 extension? But actually the flyover just at the Kingston Bridge that went nowhere. It was like a ramp to nowhere. And for years it was unfinished, it just went up and stopped. Or perhaps a better one that has been in our, our internet news recently. Um, My husband used to live at Weems Bay down the coast and at Inverkip there was a power power station that was built I think in the 80s as an oil-fired power station. Lindsay used to live down the road from it. Apparently it cost many, many, many hundreds of thousands of pounds to build and it was only ever used during the miners' strike in the 80s. It was a white elephant because oil prices skyrocketed after it was built. So it was never used apart from during the miners' strike. And actually only in the last few weeks there's been internet footage of the demolition of it imploding into its own footprint. There for all to see and view. Thousands and thousands and thousands of public money wasted. Back to our text. Yoder suggests that what Jesus was doing here was warning his followers it's a very public dimension To saying that you're going to be committed to being one of his followers. If you flop because you don't mean it, there might be public shame attached to that. Jesus then mentions in the text that there's a cross that his followers have to bear. But read this in its context. We didn't know at this point, or they didn't know at this point, how Jesus was going to die. Calvary had not happened at this point in the story. Crucifixion on a cross was not the Jewish method of execution. That was the way the Romans executed zealots, insurrectionists and revolutionaries. Was Jesus saying here to his followers that they would need to be prepared to face public opposition, unpopularity for their beliefs and the kind of suffering that's faced by many who are rejected by society, suffering that might end in an ignominious death? Central to the cost of following Jesus at that time was social estrangement. And that actually could be estrangement within the intimate bonds of the family. How often have we heard the words God first, family next, church next? Without really thinking about them. Some converts to Islam today suffer not only rejection but persecution from their families and cultures. In some parts of the parts of the world today I believe it's actually a risky business to go through believers' baptism. And here I don't actually mean to be showing off that I was listening to Stuart Blythe when I was at college when he was telling us about Baptist history. But Baptists in Scotland cannot actually trace their entire history back to the Anabaptists in the Reformation. But theologically We can. And in the Reformation, the Anabaptists were persecuted by both the Catholics and the Protestants. Now, Anabaptists at that time were not squeaky clean. They didn't always make the right decisions. But actually, it is true to say that history records for us that some of of them, when they went through believers' baptism, actually were signing their own death warrant. They never lived for very long after they'd been baptized as believers. What a cost. But what do we do here and now today in the 21st century with this difficult text? There's been many suggestions in the commentaries. But this is the one I came up with for today. Jesus' cross was the price of his presence in a world that did not want what he was bringing. It was the price of his countercultural obedience. He was unacceptable because he was the person that said God had sent him to make a different story happen in the world. And his disciples were unacceptable for the same reason. Jesus' message was of a new pattern for a real life in a real world love your enemies, forgive your offender, share your possessions. This message was countercultural in first century Jerusalem. It's just a thought, but have we in the 21st century as Christians here today? Forgot that there is a cost in being a believer. Are we too anxious to conform to our society's norms, to fit in? Maybe some of us need to reconsider what Jesus has called us to and be more vocally or actively countercultural. Maybe some of us will pay a heavy price for that. Our very human 21st century world sensibilities and cultural understanding don't make sense in the light of this passage. Or perhaps it's the other way around. This passage makes no sense when viewed through the lens of our worldly understanding of how we think things should be. But having perhaps removed that lens for a little while this morning, perhaps with a jolt, and looked at what Jesus tells us is a cost of discipleship, I think certainly I can better understand the words of Jamelia. Jamelia was martyred. For bringing the gospel in South America to an unreached people group. He was martyred on a beach in front of them, by them. But before that, he'd said this He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And as we look at the cross, I'm reminded of the last two lines of a very familiar hymn we'll sing in a few moments Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life my all may I close by reading a prayer of St. Francis of Assisi and if you find it meaningful for you please echo it in your hearts with me as a way to rededicate our lives to the way of the cross Lord make me a channel of thy peace that where there is hatred I may bring love that where there is wrong I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is error, I may bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted to understand rather than to be understood, to love than to be loved, for it is by forgetting self that one finds, it is in forgiving that one is forgiven, it is in dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen.
3: Jesus beckons us, Be my disciple, carry your cross and follow me. Jesus also says, come to me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. We have listened for the word of God, so let us pray. As the sea gathers its waters for the next waves on the shore, so God gathers disciples for loving. as the notes of harmony congregate to produce the sound of music, so God places disciples in clusterings of community. Gathering God, our vision for discipleship and community is never as loving and as generous as yours. But you constantly affirm us, as your disciples, as followers of Jesus in the work of justice and peace, compassion and healing, reflection and action. We know that our prayers for others cannot just be words. We are called to listen to you, to take up our cross and to follow you. seeking to be better disciples. We pray this morning for imagination. Imagination which will open our eyes afresh to see our neighbours at this time, those who travel with us on this road of life, those who have fallen by the roadside, those who have become non-persons or outcasts. In Glasgow, in Scotland, in Malawi, in Syria, in Nigeria, in Nepal. In a moment of silence, we reflect who are our neighbours now? Who is my neighbour? Now. Seeking to be better disciples, we pray for insight. May we seek what is good in each situation. May we be aware of the forces within and without which destroy. But also of those which will build and restore in our homes, in our community, in our church, amongst faith communities, amongst nations. In a moment of silence, we reflect what good have we sought and encouraged in recent days? What good have I sought and encouraged in recent days? Seeking to be better disciples, we pray for endurance. Lord, inspire and equip us for the costly journey towards your common will, your kingdom on earth. So that we will not be satisfied with casual solutions for the quick and easy fix which has no depth. In a moment of silence, we reflect what have we done to encourage, inspire, and support our fellow travellers? What have I done to encourage, inspire, and support my fellow travellers. You beckon us to follow you on your costly journey, O God. You who are the Christ, our way, our truth, our life. Lord, where our prayers lead, May our actions follow. And we continue our prayers in the giving of an offering.
0: As we go out into a new week, may we step forward in hope and in faith. May we put Jesus first and trust that all else that is important will fall into place. Thank oh.